Chapter Seven of A Popular History of Ireland, Book Four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Popular History of Ireland from the Earliest Period to the Emancipation of the Catholics, Book Four, by Thomas Darcy McGee. Chapter Seven: Assassination of Hugh de Lacy, John Lackland in Ireland, Various Expeditions of John de Courcy, Death of Conor Moinmoy and Rise of Cathal, the Red-Handed O'Connor, Close of the Career of de Courcy and de Berg. Hugh de Lacy, restored to the supreme authority on the recall of Fitzaldum in 1179, began to conceive hopes, as Strongbow had done, of carving out for himself a new kingdom. After the assassination of O'Rourke, already related, he assumed without further parley the titles of Lord of Meath and Brefni. To these titles he added that of Oriel, or Louth, but his real strength lay in Meath, where his power was enhanced by a politic second marriage with Rose, daughter of O'Connor. Among the Irish he now began to be known as the King of the Foreigners, and some such assumption of royal authority caused his recall for a few months in the year 1180, and his substitution by de Courcy and Philip de Brosa in 1184. But his great qualities caused his restoration a third time to the rank of Justiciary for Henry, or Deputy for John, whose title of Lord of Ireland was bestowed by his father at a Parliament held at Oxford in 1177. This founder of the Irish de Lacys is described by Geraldus, who knew him personally, as a man of Gallic sobriety, ambitious, avaricious, and lustful, of small stature and deformed shape, with repulsive features and dark, deep-set eyes. By the Irish of the Midland districts he was bitterly detested as a sacrilegious spoiler of their churches and monasteries, and the most powerful among their invaders. The murder of O'Rourke, whose title of Brefni he had usurped, was attributed to a deep-laid design. He certainly shared the odium with the advantage that ensued from it. Nor was his own end unlike that of his rival. Among other sites for castles, he had chosen the foundations of the ancient and much-venerated monastery of Duro, planted by Columcille, seven centuries before, in the midst of the fertile region watered by the Brosna. This act of profanity was fated to be his last, for while personally superintending the work, Omei, a young man of good birth, and foster-brother to a neighbouring chief of Tefia, known as Sionac, or the Fox, struck off his head with a single blow of his axe, and escaped into the neighbouring forest of Kilclare, during the confusion which ensued. De Lacy left issue, two sons, Hugh and Walter, by his first wife, and a third, William Gorm, by his second, of whom, and of their posterity, we shall have many occasions to make mention. In one of the intervals of de Lacy's disfavour, Prince John, surnamed Santerre, or Lackland, was sent over by his father to strengthen the English interest in Ireland. He arrived in Waterford, accompanied by a fleet of sixty ships, on the last of March, 1185, and remained in the country till the following November. If anything could excuse the levity, folly, and misconduct of the prince on this expedition, it would be his youth. He was then only eighteen. But Henry had taken every precaution to ensure success to his favourite son. He was preceded into Ireland by Archbishop Cumming, the English successor of St. Lawrence. The learned Glanville was his legal adviser. John de Courcy was his lieutenant, and the eloquent but passionate and partial Geraldus Cambrensis, his chaplain and tutor. He had, however, other companions, more congenial to his age and temper, young noblemen as forward and extravagant as himself. Yet, as he surpassed them all in birth and rank, so he did in wickedness and cruelty of disposition. 
For age he had no reverence, for virtue no esteem, neither truth towards man nor decency towards woman. On his arrival at Waterford, the new Archbishop of Dublin, John de Courcy, and the principal Norman nobles, hastened to receive him. With them came also certain Leinster chiefs, desiring to live at peace with the new Gauls. When, according to the custom of the country, the chiefs advanced to give John the kiss of peace, their venerable age was made a mockery by the young prince, who met their proffered salutations by plucking at their beards. This appears to have been as deadly an insult to the Irish as it is to the Asiatics, and the deeply offended guests instantly quitted Waterford. Other follies and excesses rapidly transpired, and the native nobles began to discover that a royal army encumbered, rather than led by such a prince, was not likely to prove itself invincible. In an idle parade from the Sur to the Liffey, from the Liffey to the Boyne, and in issuing orders for the erection of castles, some of which are still correctly and others erroneously called King John's castles, the campaign months of the year were wasted by the King of England's son. One of these castles, to which most importance was attached, Ardfinnan on the Sur, was no sooner built than taken by Donald Moore O'Brien, on Midsummer Day, when four knights and its other defenders were slain. Another was rising at Lismore, on the Blackwater, under the guardianship of Robert Barry, one of the brood of Nesta, when it was attacked and Barry slain. Other knights and castellans were equally unfortunate. Raymond Fitzhugh fell at Leyland, another Raymond in Idrone, and Roger Lepore in Ossory. In Desmond, Cormac McCarthy besieged Theobald, ancestor of the butlers in Cork, but this brave prince, the worthy compeer of O'Brien, was cut off in a parley by them of Cork. The clan Coleman, or O'Melaclins, had risen in West Meath to reclaim their own, when Henry, not an hour too soon, recalled his reckless son, and entrusted, for the last time, the command to Hugh de Lacy, whose fate has already been related. In the fluctuations of the power of the invaders after the death of de Lacy, and during the next reign in England, one steadfast name appears foremost among the adventurers, that of the gallant giant de Courcy, the conqueror of the Ards of Down. Not only in prowess, but also in piety, he was the model of all the knighthood of his time, we are told that he always carried about his person a copy of the prophecies attributed to Columcille, and when, in the year 1186, the relics of the three great saints, whose dust sanctifies Down Patrick, were supposed to be discovered by the Bishop of Down in a dream, he caused them to be translated to the altar-side with all suitable reverence. Yet all his devotions and pilgrimages did not prevent him from pushing on the work of conquest whenever occasion offered. His plantation in Down had time to take root from the unexpected death of Donald, Prince of Aliac, in an encounter with the garrison of one of the new castles near Newry, A.D. 1188. The same year he took up the enterprise against Connaught, in which Milo de Cogan had so signally failed, and from which even de Lacy had, for reasons of his own, refrained. The feuds of the O'Connor family were again the pretext and the ground of hope with the invaders, but Donald Moore O'Brien, victorious on the Sur and the Shannon, carried his strong succors to Connor Moinmoy on the banks of the Suca, near the present Balinisloe, and both powers combined marched against de Courcy. Unprepared for this junction, the Norman retreated towards Sligo, and had reached Balisadere, when Flaherty, lord of Tyrconnell, Donegal, came against them from the opposite point, and thus placed between two fires, they were forced to fly through the rugged passes of the Curlow Mountains, skirmishing as they went. The only incidents which signalized this campaign on their side was the burning of Balisadere and the plunder of Armagh, 
to the Irish it was creditable for the combinations it occasioned. It is cheering in the annals of those desultory wars to find a national advantage gained by the joint action of a Munster, a Connaught, and an Ulster force. The promise of national unity held out by the alliance of O'Brien and O'Connor, in the years 1188-89, to 89, had been followed up by the adhesion of the lords of Brefni, Ulidia, or Down, the chiefs of the clan Colman, and McCarthy, Prince of Desmond. But the assassination of Conor Moinmoy, by the partisans of his cousins, extinguished the hopes of the country, and the peace of his own province. The old family feuds broke out with new fury. In vain the aged Roderick emerged from his convent, and sought with feeble hand to curb the fiery passions of his tribe. In vain the archbishops of Armagh and of Tuam interposed their spiritual authority. A series of fratricidal contests, for which history has no memory and no heart, were fought out between the warring branches of the family during the last ten years of the century, until, by virtue of the strong arm, Cathal Crofdarg, son of Turlock Moore, and younger brother of Roderick, assumed the sovereignty of Connaught about the year 1200. In the twelve years which intervened between the death of Moinmoy and the establishment of the power of Cathal Crofdarg O'Connor, the Normans had repeated opportunities for intervention in the affairs of Connaught. William de Burgh, a powerful baron of the family of Fitzaldum, the former Lord Justice, sided with the opponents of Cathal, while de Courcy, and subsequently the younger de Lacy, fought on his side. Once, at least, these restless barons changed allies, and fought as desperately against their former candidate for the succession as they had before fought for him. In one of these engagements, the date assigned to which is the year 1190, Sir Armoric St. Lawrence, founder of the Howth family, at the head of a numerous division, is said to have been cut off with all his troop. But the fortune of war frequently shifted during the contest. In the year 1199, Cathal Crovdorg, with his allies de Lacy and de Courcy, was utterly defeated at Kilmacdog, in the present county of Galway, and were it not that the rival O'Connor was sorely defeated, and trodden to death in the rout which ensued, three years later, Connaught might never have known the vigorous administration of her red-handed hero. The early career of this able and now triumphant prince, as preserved to us by history and tradition, is full of romantic incidents. He is said to have been born out of wedlock, and that his mother, while pregnant of him, was subject to all the cruel persecutions and magical torments the jealous wife of his father could invent. No sooner was he born than he became an object of hatred to the queen, so that mother and child, after being concealed for three years in the sanctuaries of Connaught, had to fly for their lives into Leinster. In this exile, though early informed of his origin, he was brought up among the labourers in the field, and was actually engaged, sickle in hand, cutting the harvest, when a travelling ball-scare, or newsman from the west, related the events which enabled him to return to his native province. "'Farewell, sickle!' he exclaimed, casting it from him. "'Now for the sword!' Hence Cathal's farewell to the rye was long a proverbial expression for any sudden change of purpose or of condition." Fortune seems to have favoured him in the most of his undertakings. In a storm upon Lowry, when a whole fleet foundered and its warrior crew perished, he was one of seven who were saved. Though in some of his early battles unsuccessful, he always recovered his ground, kept up his alliances, and returned to the contest. After the death of the celebrated Donald Moore O'Brien, A.D. 1194, he may certainly be considered the first soldier and first diplomatist among the Irish. Nor was his lot cast on more favoured days, nor was he pitted against less able men than those with whom the brave King of Munster, the stoutest defender of his fatherland, had so honourably striven. 
Fortunate it was for the renown of the Gael, that as one star of the race set over Thomond, another of equal brilliancy rose to guide them in the west. With the end of the century, the career of Cathal's allies, de Courcy and de Berg, may be almost said to have ended. The obituary of the latter bears the date of 1204. He had obtained large grants from King John of lands in Connaught, if he could conquer them, which his vigorous descendants, the Burks of Clanricard, did their best to accomplish. De Courcy, warring with the sons of de Lacy, and seeking refuge among the clansmen of Tyrone, disappears from the stage of Irish affairs. He is said to have passed on to England, and ended his days in prison, a victim to the caprice or jealousy of King John. Many tales are told of his matchless intrepidity. His indirect descendants, the barons of Kinsale, claim the right to wear their hats before the king in consequence of one of these legends, which represents him as the champion knight of England, taken from a dungeon to uphold her honour against a French challenger. Other tales as ill-authenticated are founded on his career, which, however, in its literal truth, is unexcelled except for hardihood and adventure, except, perhaps, by the cotemporaneous story of the lion-hearted Richard, whom he closely resembled. The title of Earl of Ulster, created for de Courcy in 1181, was transferred in 1205, by royal patent, to Walter de Lacy, whose only daughter Maud brought it in the year 1264 to Walter de Burg, Lord of Connaught, from whose fourth female descendant it passed in 1354, by her marriage with Lionel, Duke of Clarence, into the royal family of England. End of chapter 7